0: now listening to Grace City, Portland. Hello. It's good to see you all. Haven't been here for a while. and It's just uh, great to be back and part of this community. What a great church you have. And uh, I think your pastors are amazing. They, uh, I think that you know this, they deeply love you. And they just want to serve you and serve this city. And it's such a privilege to know people who are doing this for the sake of someone else, not just themselves. And uh, they're a remarkable couple and it's a privilege to call them friends. Uh, I understand that you're in the middle of a series called The Classics. Is that right? Well, we're going to be talking about... I mean, you have to kind of stretch it to talk about this. And we're going to be looking at Hosea today. And uh, I don't know if that's a classic. I don't know. Yeah, that's right. Um, Hosea is one of my favorite books of the bible for this reason i think it reveals god's heart in a way that few other books of the bible do if you want to know what god's thinking about and what god wrestles through as he leads the world you want to read the book of hosea Uh, It reveals his heart in a way that, I don't know, another book in the Bible does. And this is how he presents himself. He presents himself as the husband of an unfaithful wife. That's how he uh, presents himself to how he relates to the world. Let's read in uh, chapter 2, verse 5. Unfortunately, this one isn't going to be up on the screen. The rest will be. But uh, if you have a phone or a Bible... Hosea 2, verse 5. Now, this is, uh, this is Israel talking, and Israel is the she, because uh, she's the unfaithful wife. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water. She has not acknowledged that I, God, was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens. I will take back my wool and my linen, intended to cover her naked body. So I'm going to take my toys and go home. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of Egypt, place of slavery and alienation from God. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, You will no longer call me my master. I'll remove the names of the Baals, which are the false gods, or in terms of this story, the false lovers, from her lips. Now, uh, when you go through the book of Isaiah, there is a constant battle going on in God's mind, and it's between mercy and justice. And it goes back and forth through the whole book. And it says, uh, you know, I'm going to be kind to my, uh, to my people. I'm going to love them and overlook what they do. But man, every time I do that, they take advantage of me. They misunderstand what's going on. They run after other lovers. I have to bring justice in this moment. It wouldn't be right if I didn't. Ah, but I love them so much. I can't treat them that way. And the book goes back and forth between mercy, mercy, and justice, and uh, I don't know how many of you here are parents, but it's kind of like parenting, where you are super nice to your kids. We have, uh, by the way, we have ten children, and uh, uh, <laughs> I never know what the woof means, <laughs> but uh, we have uh, we have ten we have ten kids, uh, three natural, one adopted. Four foster, and then one just is living with us. Uh, um, so they've come to us in lots of different ways. But uh, if you're a parent, you know what this is like, where you are super nice to your kids. You say yes to everything, and they go, this is excellent. I can do whatever I want. I love this family. And, uh, but they, they get selfish, and then you have to discipline them. But you love them so much, you don't want to stay there. You want to see them come back. And so you, you're constantly moving between uh, mercy and justice over and over and over again. It's what relationship is like if you have kids. And so when we look at God's heart, this is how He's wrestling with us, His church. And what's the primary thing that He's wrestling with? It's betrayal. I can't have done more for you. I gave you my son. I would do anything for you. And yet it never seems like quite enough for you. And I feel betrayed. Now I think betrayal is profound. That God would even let himself be betrayed betrayed I don't know if any of you have done any study of Islam I've done some study I've read the Quran and I have a, have a really good friend who's a um, he's in Iran and he's a uh, professor of philosophy in Iran and so we talk a lot about Christianity and uh, and Islam and uh, I think that religion is is often misunderstood. But one of the things that's true is that uh, Allah would never let himself feel betrayed. He just wouldn't go there. I'm Almighty God, and uh, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'm up there and you're down here. And that emotional investment in a people is absent in the Quran and we have a God I mean this is just shocking you have an almighty God perfect holy righteous created everything uh, doesn't need things but has chosen to let himself be hurt by us that's a different kind of God that we can hurt him and he lets himself be hurt because he's emotionally invested in his relationship with us. I remember one of the most graphic times when I got to, um, to watch somebody work through the issue of betrayal. I, uh, there was a couple, I did their wedding in just a beautiful spot in Vancouver and, uh, uh, things got rocky in the marriage really quickly after, the, uh, after their wedding day. It didn't go well almost instantaneously. And so Debbie and I met with this couple numerous times, working things through, and the wife just was not responsive. And eventually, after meeting with him for many times, it came out that she had been having an affair all along. And uh, I remember working this through with the husband. And it wrecked him. Uh, He's never gotten married again. This was a long time ago. He's never gotten married again. And he's never gone back to church again. He can't go... He can't engage at that level of intimacy anymore. Uh, I think he's a... uh, I would describe him as an alcoholic. And his life was destroyed because of his wife's betrayal and how he managed that. And here we have a God who isn't betrayed once, but over and over and over again by, I think, billions of people. And he keeps coming back for more. I don't even understand that. You betrayed me. You violated me in every way. I'm back again. And I'm trying to figure out how to draw you back to me that we could have a faithful relationship. Listen to one other cycle. Uh, a spirit, this is in uh, Hosea 5.4. A spirit of prostitution is in their heart. They do not acknowledge the Lord. Israel's arrogance testifies against them. The Israelites stumble in their sin. Now listen to this. So this is this this God of love that you and I worship. This is going to get hard right now, all right? I will be like a lion. I will tear them to pieces and go away. I will carry them off with no one to rescue them. Then I will return to my lair until they have borne their guilt and seek my face. In their misery, they will earnestly seek me. Well, that's a little tricky. This God of love that I think we sing about every Sunday. We never, we, I've never sung a song about God being a lion that tears us to pieces. I don't know if any of you want to get on that. I don't know how well you'll do in the sales department, but, you know, go for it. We don't sing a lot about this verse, do we? But it's in there. Uh, You know, when you you look at what the objections are uh, toward Christianity... There's a number of, uh, of big ones these days. One of them is uh, the issue of gender identity. That's a really big issue. Uh, Darwinian evolution, really big issue. People wrestling with that. And then what's right up there is the Old Testament God. That's right up there. Because the Old Testament God has been accused of genocide. Genocide. Wiping out whole nations. And then he seems quite indiscriminate in his anger. He doesn't only wipe out other nations. He wipes out his own people. And tears them to pieces. Well, that's not nice. Somehow in the hope that they would respond... And come back. Again, if you've been a parent, you understand this struggle. Um, you do things to your children. I've never torn my children to pieces. But you, uh, you, you do things that are punishments. And uh, you're praying and hoping the whole time through that they would respond with humility and come to their senses. And be restored. That's what you're hoping for. And it's what God is always hoping for. His motive is always reconciliation. Even in his justice. But. uh, So listen. To the response that God hopes for. When he acts like a lion. This is what he's hoping for. And this is on the screen. Come. Let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces. But he will heal us. Ooh, you got to think about that for a super long time. I want to return to the one who tore us to pieces because he also has the potential to heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. This is what God is hoping for when he brings justice to bear on you and I and on this world. But here's the problem I think with what's going on today and as far as I can tell what went on when Hosea was being written is that when God brings his justice, we are not sorry, we're insulted. How dare you treat me like that? Do you know who you're dealing with? Do you know how hard I've tried to be a good person? Can't even see you, but I still show up at like church and stuff. Do you know how hard that is for me? And then you want to punish me? I have moments of weakness. Look at porn, drink a little bit too much. And you want to punish me for that? I run after another lover now and then well, if you would show up a little bit better, I wouldn't have this problem. No, I think it's your issue, not mine. In fact, I'm insulted that you would make it my issue. And so this is what God's working with. That in the face of judgment, we are not looking for healing And our wounds being bound up or wrapped up by him. We're just angry. We're just upset. So. How does God respond to this? What's his answer to a people who have not just been unfaithful. But feel justified. In their unfaithfulness. How does he respond? The response. I think. Is. uh, Ingenious. It's absolutely ingenious. He responds. By sending a prophet. And I want you to hear the instructions. That God gives. To this prophet. He's going to give them a message. That will. Uh. It's God's hope that would deliver them out of their rebellious unfaithfulness and return to him. This is what he says to his prophet Hosea. Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For, like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Go marry a prostitute. That's what I want you to do. So, Hosea married Gomer. Um, So, this is, you know, double insult, marrying a prostitute, and her name is Gomer. That's just, I'm not sure which is harder to work with. You know, you can't even shorten it to make it, it's just gom, it's just nothing is working for Gomer. So, it's insult upon injury. Uh, Now, this is God's response. Now, follow me on this, because I just think this is incredible. Uh, While God exercises mercy and justice, we see this all through the book of Hosea. I'm going to be kind, generous, loving to you. I'm going to bring judgment. He's going back and forth, back and forth. Mercy and justice, mercy and justice. When it comes to the instructions that God gives to Hosea, There's no justice, there's only mercy. Uh, There is no time that you read in the book of Hosea where Hosea does anything except to be kind and generous to an adulterous wife. You don't hear any other side of then he, you know, sent her away or nothing like that's going on. She goes away, he never does. He stays faithful and merciful through the entire book. Shocking. Now, here's where it applies to us. Because this is consistent with God's call to the church. The responsibility of the church is not to show the justice of God but to show the mercy of God. And it's all we've ever been called to do. Listen to how it's described in Romans chapter 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written... It is mine to avenge, mine to bring justice. That's my job, God speaking. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the job description of the church. It's what we do we get taken advantage of over and over and over again and never retaliate. We absorb the cost of other people's sin in our lives. This is what the church does. Now, uh, I remember for a long time uh, reading the book of Revelation and being quite excited about it. Because it seemed as though there came a time when I could finally be mad. I like that part. So I thought, you know, I'll be, you know, nice and stuff for like a, a long time. And then when Revelation comes, it's like, oh yeah. I get to be part of the army of God and I finally get to exercise at least a bit of justice. You know, to make up for stuff. But what's interesting about the book of Revelation is if you look carefully, the people of God never pick up a sword. Never. We have never been commissioned by God to exercise his justice, only his mercy. You guys, this is, I mean, (laughs) this is some kind of job description for the church. What if our life purpose is not about figuring out personal perfection, but figuring out how to live a life of mercy? Now, uh, maybe you're like me, but when, uh, thank you. If you're like me, when I read the Bible, I'm looking for ways to feel better. That's mostly what I'm looking for. So I want to live a happy life. And I'm reading the Bible, you know. And I go, oh, that makes me feel better. I like that verse. And I'll underline that. <laughs> and then I leave, oh, I don't like that verse. I'll skip over that. And then I'll read, oh, I like that. And I'm mostly trying to feel happier. I'm mostly trying to feel better about myself and the people around me and, I like to feel better about God. And uh, I'm just trying to improve my relationships. And mostly feel better inside. And God says, uh, I actually have a different job description for you than you improving yourself to a place of individual happiness. I would actually like to give you a gift of participating in my mercy. And that's actually the, the life that I, I plan for you. Is that you would figure out, just like I did, how to lay down your life for someone other than you. And then, you're participating in my image, in my character, in my being, because that's what I do. God has given us a new target for life, And it's how to absorb sin through mercy. Now, I don't know if you like that. Like, what if that's what's going on? Is that God is trying to create a merciful people by leading the way and then by giving us his spirit That we could be the people who lay down our life for the benefit of another. Um, What enables us to live a merciful life? How How would we go about getting there? I think this is key. The way that you and I can be merciful... Is if we trust that God is just. Because there's something inside of us that demands justice. Does it not? I mean if somebody cuts you off or. Misunderstands you or. There's something that rises up inside of you that demands justice. And the only way that you will be able to. Quell that desire. For justice is if you know that someone else is taking care of that which frees you up to do mercy so the uh, the primary way that you and I can live a life of self-sacrifice is if we trust that God is just and at the end of the day justice will be served Luke 6.35 says this love your enemies do good to them then your reward will be great because your father is kind to the ungrateful and wicked, otherwise known as us, and you'll be following in my ways. And so I'm going to reward you for that. One of the things that has really helped me, and maybe, I mean, isn't helpful for you, but it is for me, I know that every sin that has ever been committed against me will be paid for every sin ever committed against me will be paid for, either by Jesus dying on the cross for that sin or by the person going to hell. I know that that's a hard thing to think about, but when you're sinned against, I like knowing that. (laughs) I like knowing that, okay, you were not nice to me, and at the end of the day, justice will be served. And because I know that justice will be served, in this moment, I can churn the other cheek. In this moment, I can absorb that. In this moment, I can love my enemies. In this moment, I can give you what you don't deserve but desperately need. I can do that in this moment. Because I trust in the justice of God, I can administer his mercy. Now, here's where it gets really important. This new target of a merciful people, this new target is what the world needs from us. How is the world going to be able to trust in the justice of God? So this is what we find, right? This is hard right now in our world. So we, we look at the Old Testament. We look at the world today and we, we look at what God describes as justice, and we go, that's not justice, that's just cruelty. That's just genocide. That's just egotism at a divine level. That's all that that is. How is the world ever going to be able to trust that God is good in his administration of justice? And the answer that God gives to the world is a prophet and a church that champion mercy. The way people can't trust God's justice until they taste of his mercy. And so what if the reason why, I mean, this is hard, but just, what if the reason why the uh, world is as arrogant as it is and defiant and rebellious against God as it is, what if the reason for that is not because we don't have good apologetics, you know, rationally defending the character of God? What if the reason why is that the church has not gotten around to its job of mercy, laying down our life for the world? And when we lay down our life for the world, they are silenced in their accusations against God because his people practice mercy. And if that's what his people look like, then that must be who he is. And so I can trust him when he administrates justice. Are you following me on the logic? This puts great weight on the church and I find that invigorating. Because I'm not filling a spot in a church. I am announcing and declaring the very nature of God in how I live. Our sacrifice reveals that He is trustworthy. Uh, Divi and I have had, I think that there's, I don't, we've been married 33 years. And uh, I think three of those years, nobody else was living with us. We've always had people living with us. Uh, We've had people come off the streets and live with us. We've had people who uh, are foreign students, uh, troubled teenagers. Um, It just goes on and on. Lots of different people. We've noticed something. We've noticed that the people who live with us, the ones that come to Christ are the ones that tasted of some form of mercy in our home. This is what we've noticed. Um, we have, uh, I, I remember one of the first uh, foreign students that we had live with us. He was from Japan, snowboarding dude. And uh, he came kind of for school, but uh, <laughs> he didn't go to school. And so, uh, so he was mostly up in the mountains and, uh, and then, you know, with his girlfriend. And, uh, you know, not really a great guy. Uh, but he got broke because he spent all of his money on his girlfriend in a snowboard, going snowboarding. And so Debbie and I look at each other and we go, you know what? I think we should give this guy free rent. And so we give him free rent. And what's the first thing out of his mouth? Tell me about your God. Because nobody gives free rent. And so the story goes that uh, that he, Debbie had a prophetic word for him and really cool stuff. We ended up, uh, uh, his, his, his girlfriend was pregnant and uh, they were going to abort the child but they ended up uh, keeping that child and we married them. Debbie was there for the birth of that child and that was over 20 years ago and they went back to Japan and that child has now come back and he's in our church, married somebody in our church. Really cool. It's the first time I've done a Two generations of weddings. You know, the parents and the... Which is kind of sad because it means I'm old. But it it's, uh, it's kind of cool also. Uh, as soon as we gave them free rent, they would listen to the gospel. Are you following that? The other thing that we noticed the other way is we would forgive them. One of the things that we noticed is uh, that... Uh, some of the students would live in our, in our basement. And the windows in the basement open, and so you can smuggle people in and out of your room without anybody knowing. And so they would smuggle in their boyfriends or girlfriends, and then, you know, they would leave in the middle of the night or whatever. And I remember this, uh, this one guy, I forget where he was from. I think he was from Korea, but I can't, Taiwanese, that's what it was. And uh, uh, so we let him know, you know, you can't smuggle in your girlfriend and, you know, that's not very, that's not nice. And so we we said that to him and then uh, he wouldn't come home. What he would do is he would wait outside of our house until the lights turned off and then sneak in because he just didn't want to see us. And so we noticed, you know, that this was happening some out there. And so we, we went out and talked with them. And we extended the kindness that God has shown to us to him. And he came to Christ. Uh, I am uh, I'm really interested in Education. I, you know, I like studying and stuff and I'm, I'm interested in apologetics and giving a defense for our faith and why God is real and why he really is nice even though he doesn't look very nice all that kind of stuff there is no replacement for the church laying down its life for the world like Jesus did And our society will become more and more secular to the degree that we don't embrace our life purpose. Um, I don't know the last time that you've been taken advantage of. It could be that you actually design your life in such a way to not be taken advantage of. And if you do, you will not be able to reveal Jesus Christ to the world around you. I'm sorry, I don't know of another way. I don't know of a way. You Listen to the stories around the world. Where do we see revival? Is it not always in persecution? Is that not always where we find it? And so somehow the Western church has graduated beyond persecution. And in doing so, we've moved outside of the gospel and all that we have left is fine-sounding arguments. And it's not enough. We need the power of the Spirit demonstrated through lives of self-sacrifice. Now, I don't know about you, that could be hard or it's just better. Or it's just better. I was... uh, my kids. I'm almost done. My kids were were watching a, uh, um, it's uh, Seinfeld. What's his first name? Jerry Seinfeld, and it's something about uh, cars and coffee or something. Have you seen this? Yeah, driving around in a car. What's? It? I don't know. It's a long name. Yeah, cars with a Okay, so Brian Regan is on there. I just watched this a couple of days ago. So Brian Regan's on there, and he says uh, they were they were talking. Uh, about uh, their jobs. And he says, Brian Regan is saying, I remember one of my first jobs. It was in a a place where they uh, put together bicycles. And so one of the other guys who was working there longer, he says, hey, I have a way that we can not work and nobody will notice. Okay, show me. So what he does is behind where the bikes are being uh, put together, there's a hole in the wall. It's between that and another, and another room And it's, it's really narrow and He says come on in here And so they, they go in there And they're You know they're, they're in the wall You know not working And the, and the guy says Isn't this great? <laughs> and he just He says are not working And he's just he can't do anything He's just in the wall And uh, And Brian Regan says you know you know, I wouldn't mind, you know, working a bit. I think that'd be more interesting. But we somehow think we're successful and happier if there's no cost to our life. And I think I am most alive when what I'm doing is costing me something. I'm most alive. Because it just became important, right? Because anything that you do that's easy, probably not valuable. But the moment you take up something that costs you something, now you're living. And so, you know, Debbie and I will say, we don't need, we don't watch soap operas anymore, or reality TV, we don't need any of that. We live You know, on reality TV, we have more than enough drama going on in our life. We don't need to click through someone else's drama. Um, And so we are, you know, I'm alive and often in pain. Can I please tell you something? There is something worse than pain. Irrelevance. Is worse than pain. I watch people my age and older, and they're describing their retirement. They're describing their irrelevance as the reward for a life lived. It's like, really? Really? Like, that's what this was all for? You could, you know, be on the wall? You know? <laughs> really, that's what we're working towards. Okay. I didn't, I didn't know that. In closing, do you struggle that God is just? Do you struggle with that? I do. Do you struggle that God is just? Do you struggle that he's fair? That at the end of the day, accounts will be settled? Balanced? Do you struggle with that? I do sometimes. What's the way... So we know the benefit for the world to live a life of self-sacrifice. Okay, have we made that clear? How are you going to be able to work through your trust issues with God. There is a way that is better above every other way that I know, and I've done lots of study. Practice mercy. If you practice mercy, you will understand something about God that no book could ever teach you. When you've laid down your life for the benefit of another, I remember this uh, You know, this one time we had a guy who he was living on the streets, and our church had a halfway house. So they took him to the halfway house, but the halfway house got shut down. And so uh, he was still in rough shape. So we, we said, hey, why don't you come live with us? So he came to live with us, I don't know, for how long, a year? And a uh, great guy, super funny, really enjoyed him a lot. Uh, he, was a, he was a drug addict. But uh, he was, you know, living clean and sober. And then we, we gave him our car. We uh, gave him a whole bunch of money. He was a drywaller so that he could buy his tools. And, uh, and the first check that he got, he shot up 16 times. Heroin. And I remember uh, Debbie and I came home. We only had one child at that point, Jonathan. We came home, and our house looked like it had been ransacked. Um, there was a, a, a dent in the fridge, and stuff was overturned and smashed. And so we called upstairs for him, not a Smart Move, and he came out. And if you've ever seen somebody high, you know that look in their eyes. And I was like, sorry, you know, go back to sleep. But it was too late. And so uh, you know, I did what any manly man would do. I ran outside with my family and phoned 911. And, uh, and then as, uh, the next day, um, uh, I, I come downstairs, so the police took him off and, uh, did whatever they did with him. So we thought, well, that was done. So I come downstairs the next day and he's standing in our living room and he knew how to break into our house. (laughs) So he uh, broke into our house and, uh, was standing in our living room. Saying, hey, I'm so sorry, give me another chance. And I'm thinking, you know, in my head, no. <laughs> that's what I'm mostly thinking. And, uh, but I thought, you know, just wait a minute, I'm going to talk to my wife. And so Debbie comes home uh, with boxes, you know, to move him out. And uh, she sees him and God speaks to her and says, my son's come home again. And the first thing that goes through Debbie's mind is, uh, he's your son. <laughs> I would have thought the same thing. Um, but my son's come home again. <clears throat> and so we let him stay again. And then now he's getting violent. Every time he gets a paycheck, shoots up again, and he's getting violent, it's not safe. So we changed the locks on our door, figured out how he broke in the last time, fixed that. And, uh, and then he phones us from a hotel telling us that he's going to kill himself and it's all our fault, as he's telling us night after night, just to remind us in case it wasn't clear the last night. So then we don't hear from him for about six years. And then uh, he phones us and he says, I don't know whether you want to take my phone call or not, but, you know, this is me. And he says, I want to tell you what's been going on in the last six years. For the last six years, I, when I left your place, I ended up being back in the streets again but I've been sober now for about four years and I'm actually now house sitting for a pastor and uh, I've given my life to God and I want you to know that the unconditional love that you showed me I couldn't forget that and it changed my life and I just want to thank you for that we're not great, we're just forgiven. That's all that's going on, is we've just, we're just forgiven. Can I please encourage you? Have a couple stories. Have a couple stories. Work that through, and you will not doubt the mercy or justice of God again. You'll get it. You'll get it do you want to say anything it's a long ways up
1: as I'm listening to Greg I mean he's told lots of stories I know he's spoken lots but um, I often think it's not easy to suffer and you're as pastors you don't want to stand in front of your church and say hey you know, we want to call you to suffering but I I have to tell you that um, it's in the times of suffering that we've grown the most and even in this last season with the children that we have, I could go through all of them and tell you how much suffering they've been through. Unjust suffering as children and um, unfair and shouldn't, things should never have happened to them that have happened to them. And now, as they're growing up as parents, we re- we are seeing some of the results of what that brokenness is leading them to. And we still got to lay down and love and, and um and even like last Christmas, God really spoke to me about this story and said, I've called you to marry a broken community, and, um, and it is my privilege, our privilege, to do so. And we have, I've thought about this hard, because I've had moments where I go, oh dear God, this is way too hard, this is more than I can do and more than we can manage. And in those moments, though, is when you find the grace to go on. And in those moments of suffering, uh, we've said to ourselves, we have two choices. We can become resentful and bitter, or we can take these trials and tribulations and have them work in us a maturity and a patience and a godliness. And I think, you know, we don't go around talking like this all the time, but I just pray that, you know, God would use our family as a very broken representation of a very broken church that's called to greatness, not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is in us. And the testimony is not our testimony, but Christ who is in us, that works in us all the time. And so sometimes we do marriage counseling, we tell them, you guys got to get yourself a homestay student and you'll stop slamming the doors. You know, and, or, you know, it's like when you have something other than yourselves to think about, you have to change when you, you know, your children, like we want a good marriage because we have a generation that's following us. And there's a reason that we want to be godly in our marriage. There's a reason we want to be godly as pastors. No matter what you do, if you have a vision bigger than yourselves, then you will rise up to that challenge. But if you're only thinking about yourself and surviving the moment, then go ahead and be selfish. But one day there will be justice, and I'm scared of that justice, and I would rather operate in mercy. And so it's like, God, deal with any wicked way in me, lest I be a stumbling block to the coming of your kingdom. And so, you know, I don't know that we chose to do all of the things that we have done, but they've come into our lives, and we've said yes in obedience. And people will say, we could never do what you do. Don't do what we do. Do what God's called you to do. And so when you see that thing and your eyes are opened and you got to pray about it, and you got to get on your knees and you find yourself saying yes, then I'll tell you for certain by experience that God will come through despite your feelings of inadequacy because his grace is sufficient for us. And so I just, I just, this is, this is a hard message, but if we can receive it as the truth and embrace that truth, I'm telling you that, you know, this side of heaven is about building his kingdom and he wants to do that. So if we, you know, we're co-laborers in Christ, and God is faithful, and His love endures forever. Pray for us. Yeah, you, you can pray. Do you want me to pray?
0: Can we stand together, please?
1: God, I just thank you that Your design is perfect for us. That you designed the gospel in such a way that we would never be irrelevant if we walk with you. I thank you, Father, that your grace is sufficient. Father, I thank you that you are calling people to a life of laying down their life for another. Thank you, Father, that as we do that, as we seek your face, as we knock upon your door, God, you are always faithful. Your presence is always with us. As we sang earlier, Father, you are a good, good God. And as we look to you, Father, the author and the perfecter of our faith, then God, There is nothing that can stop us from building your kingdom. And we do that as partners and co-laborers in Christ. So we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have gone before us, and that you want to enlighten us to see what is on your heart. And we say yes, Father, to embracing the call that you have given each of us. We say yes to embracing the call upon this church. We thank you, Father, for the leaders in this church. We thank you, Father, for the mission of this church. And we thank you, Father, that as we sacrifice and as the church sacrifices, God, then this church will be full. Portland will be reached. A nation will be saved. And, Father, we respond to that because we don't want to be irrelevant. God, we thank you for your faithfulness. In your name, amen.